You are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I am your host, TJ Melanoski. Today's guest is Reverend Andy Eppard, a Cumberland Presbyterian minister, a doctoral student, and a fan of Charles Spurgeon. He pastors at the Cedar Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Greenville, Tennessee. Over the course of our conversation, Andy shares a shift in life where he went from being a pleasure seeker to a seeker of God and dove deep into the studying and absorbing all that he could to live a life of discipleship. In doing so, his journey led him to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. You are listening to The Cumberland Road, and here is my conversation with Andy Eppard. Andy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be the guest and um, off mic working on technical aspects so that we can have this conversation today. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it so much uh, for, for doing that. Well, let's jump right in. I like starting conversations, uh, talking about journeys and experiences. And Andy, if you could share with me a meaningful experience that you've had with God. It can be something from long ago or uh, something recent. A meaningful experience. Yeah. Uh, probably the most meaningful experience, um, was, well, my my born again experience. And, um, I was, uh, raised in the the United Methodist church and I had never, I had been baptized and confirmed when I was about 12, Mm -hmm. but I was, uh, not born again and I wasn't following God. Um, and when I was 18 years old, the Lord brought me to a point, um, where I started feeling guilty for my sins, which was very strange to me because, um, you know, I was, I didn't have that sensitivity before that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't guilty. Yeah. Um, I, I felt fine, you know, doing things that other people did. And all of a sudden I'm kind of coming under deep conviction. And, uh, anyway, I became very sick, um, in body. I actually had a tumor that got removed later on, but it was, we didn't know what it was at the time. And it basically, it would, um, it made me very ill. And uh, I made a, I basically made a deal with God that if he would heal me, that I would surrender my life to him. And um, I woke up the next morning and I was completely fine. Um, now that, that tumor was still there and I, I would have to have surgery probably about 10 years later. But, um, you know, at the time though, I was completely feeling great and, um, I, you know, I wanted to keep my promise. And so my life changed completely. So that was probably the most meaningful uh, time that I could think of. Did you realize that the promise that you made was actually a service in ministry? No, I did not. No. <laughs> would you, would you have made a different promise if you knew that you would become a minister to the word and the sacraments? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No. I'm, and really once the Lord called me about two years later, I was like 20 years old and I was wanting to be a medical doctor. And, uh, I, I was teaching Bible studies. And the thing is that 
uh, people were telling me, hey, you make a great minister. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And I, mean, I had no interest whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And um, but I remember when the Lord started dealing with me about it. Um, and he started dealing with me through, through other people. And I also was listening to a sermon my pastor was preaching and I felt a connection with him as a minister. And I felt, I felt starting getting convicted again about this is like feeling the Lord is calling me to do this. And, and I really wrestled with it for a couple of days um, because I really did not want to go into the ministry. Um, But once I surrendered to his will, it became my passion and I never looked back. Um, I, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Yeah, I I understand. Andy, let's go back to when you were younger, uh, around 12 years old. Mm-hmm. You had made a commitment to Christ and you were baptized. Um, yes. What did that mean for the young Andy? Because it wasn't until later that you realized there was a difference between the verbal commitment and maybe a lifelong commitment. So yeah, what, were you, what um, were you thinking, you know, the 12-year-old Andy? Let, let me back up even further than that, right. um, and we'll go. We'll go up to that because probably because it's another meaningful experience. Um, when I was about seven, um, my parents had, bu- had built a home, and there was a Church of Christ right across the street from it. Hmm. And uh, we did not attend church. I, I was interested in church because I had friends that go, and they'd invite me to go with them, and I enjoyed it. But we didn't go. My mom was a believer. My dad was not, and. Um, but I, one, one summer I went to their VBS and I remember, uh, there wasn't very many people there. There's some young teenager, teenage girls that were teaching my class. And I remember them sharing the gospel with me and I I got teared up and, um, you know, I, I heard the gospel and I believed the message they heard or I heard, but I didn't, um, didn't really know what to do with it because we didn't go to church for, oh gosh, at least a few more years when my parents went through a divorce, but that led me to eventually, uh, attending the First United Methodist in Columbus, Indiana, and I went through confirmation class, and and I, I feel like the Lord touched my heart then too, because uh, I heard the gospel message all over again. Um, but you know, as far as what it meant to young Andy, I didn't know what to do with it. I really didn't have any direction. Uh, we went to Sunday school, and I went to church every Sunday. But as far as like daily living and stuff, I, you know, I didn't have anybody telling me really that you need to read your Bible. Um, you need to pray every day. I I prayed at night, but it was just more of a ritual. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I just kind of went along with, with what everybody else did, got in trouble. Um, (laughs) I don't know. It just, it it wasn't life changing for me. It was not until I was 18 Mm -hmm. because that's the thing. When you become a a true disciple of Christ, you surrender to him. Mm -hmm. It's a complete surrender of your will. And I, that's not what it was for me when I was 12. It was just, it, it, it was an acknowledgement that Jesus was Lord and Savior, but I didn't make him the Lord of my life. I did not surrender to him. And it wasn't until later when I did, when my life really changed. So that's interesting because, you know, I hadn't really thought about that in terms of the importance of discipleship and maybe even mentorship. Mm-hmm. We, we might use different terms, but yeah, that discipleship of, Oh, your journey is really just beginning and yeah. to have, have someone else, your same age, a little bit older, or even an adult to kind of walk through and model and, and, 
and allow you to practice and fail and and uh, show you the ways that's so important. And I, I think right. oftentimes we overlook that regardless yeah. of the age bracket. Yeah, I mean, because um, it it wasn't really talked about in church, and it wasn't. It was a big city church, and it was it was somewhat liberal, and mm-hmm. so there wasn't that strong discipleship and that. I just didn't get that there. Um, and my, you know, because of that, my parents also, they were, you know, they were Christians, but they weren't really strong in their faith. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the difference between the way I raised my kids. Uh, like my daughter, I mean, you know, when she was just a kid, I'd say, you know, have you, have you said your prayers today? Have you read your Bible? Yeah. And so, you know, she knew that she needed what she needed to do. Uh, when she went to college this year, um, I'm like, well, we need to find you a good church home. And she's like, oh, I'll just listen to, I'll just get on Facebook and listen to you preach. I'm like, no, <laughs> you you need to find a community of faith that you can become a part of while you're there. And right. so um, I didn't have that. And uh, I think we do need somebody, whether it be a parent or uh, somebody in the church or some type of a mentor, uh, whether it, and, and everybody needs that. They really do. Yeah. And, and we, I I don't want to sound like that we as Christians are uh, utter failures because in many ways we do that. Uh, In many ways Mm -hmm. we do have partners, you know, so you see it more with maybe an adult and then in a youth or a young person, if someone has made a profession of faith and you partner the two up, or you might, you might see that in confirmation classes, but there's that, that need for the continuation of the discipleship, I think is, is important to help, help the faith grow. I, I was, agree. I was, uh, I was chuckling uh, when you were talking about your daughter, um, just you know, listening to you. Um, I there is something to be said for young adults to be able to to form their own faith community or be a part of a faith community that may not necessarily involve their parents or grandparents or or, or guardians, mm-hmm. so yeah. that so that the faith can be fostered more. Um, uh, you know, not not to exclude your extended family, but so that it is a personal relationship and not through a parent or through right. a guardian. Yes. Yeah. And she, she's a strong Christian. She, um, she has, uh, friends who she studies the Bible with and goes to church with. And so I'm, I'm really proud of her. So Andy, what happened at the age of 18? You, this was a transitional moment for you. Yes. Where, well, um, prior to that, as I mentioned, I really just didn't have convictions. Um, mm-hmm. I remember one friend of mine, uh, we were hanging out after work. We, we both worked at a pizza place and we were, we were doing some stuff that we shouldn't be doing. And <laughs> he went to Assembly of God Church and he said, hey, hey, Andy, what do you think God thinks about this? And I'm like, I don't think he really cares. <laughs> and I was serious. I didn't think God really cared how I was living my life. You know, as long as I wasn't hurting anybody and wasn't being mean. And, you know, I just had no idea. And it, it just wasn't until I had that born again experience where um, my life changed. Um, and like I said, it was it, it was just that deep conviction over my sin and then the Holy Spirit coming into my life. And after that, I you know, my, my ritualistic prayers in the evening changed to where I was actually seeking God. I was reading my Bible every day. I was uh, praying in the morning and the evening. And they were they were sincere prayers. They weren't just like mom or bless my mom, bless my dad. I mean, it was it was actual conversation with God. And I was, you know, interceding for others and 
Um, you know, they were true prayers. I was basically learning how to walk spiritually hmm. for the first time in my life. So it wasn't necessarily like this one pivotal lightning bolt experience, but it was a growing conviction and the, and the realization of the, the, the need for forgiveness and grace. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I, it's a, and I even see, um, and I can see God, even though I don't believe I was born again when I'm younger, I can see God working at those different moments in my life. Um, and it just, um, I think it all came to that complete surrender when I was 18 is when my journey really began. Yeah. But, but before that, the Lord was working in my life for sure. Well, I would think that the process is pretty natural. You know, you're, you, you know, preteen to teenage, early teens, there, that awareness mm-hmm. of, of God through Jesus yes. Christ. Um, and, and you just see this progression and this growth in, in terms of understanding and, and self-awareness, but also awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit and, and God working on you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we hear other people's faith journeys, you know, they're not always sandwiched into one very brief moment in time. It, it really is. No. It really is a journey. It really right. is. It is. I, you know, I think for some people, um, they might have, you know, they can pinpoint when they were saved. You know, they, they went to an evangelistic meeting or maybe they made a profession of faith somewhere. Um, but for others, it, it is a journey mm-hmm. and uh, it's more of a process. Yeah. And so I would even I even though I can pinpoint that one time when I surrendered to God, I can see the process working way before that. And after so, too. So when you were in your late teens and um, kind of working through this growing conviction, um, how did that change your relationships, uh, or did it with maybe oh, your family, coworkers, uh, family, friends? Uh, my family relationships didn't change a whole lot. I was um, my parents were always worried about me because I just did stuff that I shouldn't, but that, you know, so that worry was gone because I was living, living for God now. And so that my relationship with them was strengthened. Um, but as far as my friends are concerned, all my friends were, were basically the party crowd. So, um, I pretty much lost all those friendships except for a couple. Um, just, you know, we didn't have anything in common anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't like to party. Instead, I wanted to go to church and read my Bible and pray. And I was, you know, following God. But I built, you know, after that, though, I started building new relationships, uh, new, uh, met some new Christian friends and even people who I'd gone to school with before. But we didn't we had previously didn't hang out because we didn't have anything uh, in common. Mm -hmm. Now we started hanging out. And uh, I started I remember the it was probably um Oh, when I was about 19 or 20, I started um, teaching a Bible study at one of my friend's um, house on Sunday nights. And we got to where we had probably at least 10 young people there. And we were just studying the Bible and praying. And, um, you know, so I had all those new relationships that were built. Did you experience a, a, a sense of loss or a time of loneliness? Because as you're making these life changes based upon your faith, uh, some of the things that you no longer, you know, had an interest to you, was it, was it hard to give some of those up? Was it hard to kind of 
uh, walk away from from colleagues, from friends, from coworkers, and and maybe even being treated differently by them was that was that a difficult time? Uh, not really. I would say it was. Um, you know, even some of those relationships, it, they just kind of went a different direction. But mm-hmm. I didn't really feel any loss um, mm-hmm. because I, I did have an understanding of what happened, so I mm-hmm. wasn't oblivious to it. And um, like I said, I was making new friends. And, um, the Lord was filling my life with, with, with joy, the joy of the Lord. And so instead of finding, um, instead of being a pleasure seeker, I was, had become a God seeker and I was finding fulfillment in him and, uh, fulfillment in the things of God. Yeah. Even even going to church on Sunday morning, uh, um, I know that they, um, it was a large church and, after the service, they had this time of fellowship with um, old coffee and donuts and and not a whole lot of young people were there. But I enjoyed just hanging out and talking to other Christians. And I don't know, this things changed. My interest changed. For somebody who may be listening, if you could, Andy, kind of walk through, you know, you, you were putting aside some things that would be considered pleasurable and they were being replaced with God things. Yes. Let's live here for a moment. What mm-hmm. what does that mean? What what did that entail for you? Um, and and specifically, what were those God filling things that drew you away from from maybe the sense of guilt and conviction, but also some of the pleasure seeking that wasn't healthy for you physically mm-hmm. and spiritually? All right. Um, I've. I found real joy in studying the scriptures and in praying, uh, going to church. And, uh, I watched a lot of, um, a lot of, oh, television programs that were Christian based. Mm. Um, a lot of evangelists and stuff I started listening to, which later on, I realized that, you know, some of these guys that were preaching, um, they were teaching some things that were not right, but <laughs> that, that was a, that was just something I had to learn, but I was, I was hungry for it. Yeah. So, and you were being, you were being fed at that time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I became interested in prophecy and, um, I'd never heard about Jesus Christ coming back. <laughs> I mean, I, I just knew the basics, uh, all the way up to probably about 20 years old. I'm like, I finally heard, Oh, Jesus is coming back. Really? I had no clue. I mean, I'm just so uneducated in, in the Christian doctrine. So I, I really, I really started getting into theology and, um, matter of fact, I felt like, I mean, I was an avid reader and I felt like I was probably, um, oh, I probably knew, I'd read so much. I probably knew a lot more entering seminary than a lot of people did when they came out of it. I just, cause I just read a lot. You were that hungry. Oh, I was. Yeah. Well, what advice would you have for somebody who is seeking, seeking a new way, seeking a new path, and they may not be able to articulate it in, in what uh, I would call church speak or Christian speak, mm-hmm. but uh, what, where would you point them to um, in terms of, well, the scriptures, let's say they're not very, very familiar with it or, or never really opened up a Bible before, but where would you point somebody who is seeking a new way of life that uh, the world doesn't have to offer? 
And mm-hmm. so they're, they've, they feel like they've kind of exhausted all those different avenues and they have not been filling in the way that um, Christians talk about being filled. So you're talking about somebody who doesn't know the Lord? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they might not even put it in that particular way just because of the vernacular or the language. Yeah. Uh, sure. You know, but putting it in a way that this world is not offering what I need, but it, I don't know exactly what it is that I do need. Well, I would, I'd probably tell them that there is something within all of us that needs fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's just an emptiness that's inside everybody, a void, you might say. And a lot of people try to fill that void with the pleasures of this world and, and other things, maybe even relationships. But the only thing that can truly fill that void is God himself and through a relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You were telling me that there was a point in your, your late teens, early twenties uh, with a, with a health scare. And yes. it, that was, that was a, a place that you had made a promise. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't remember from our uh, earlier technical difficulties if we, if we got that in the recording or not. So Andy, if you don't mind, can we, can we talk about that for a few minutes and, and what that was like? Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. I had a, um, I had what's called Meckel's diverticulum, which is an outgrowth from your umbilical cord. And, uh, what it would do, it would wrap itself around my intestine and I'd get a blockage. And, it, the, and it, there's different points in my life where it happened. And the doctors didn't know what was going on. And um, I, I got sick at age seven, age 12, age 18. 18 is when I had that experience where I surrendered to the Lord mm-hmm. but, um, and, and got, was born again. But I still had that sickness. And um, I got sick again when I was 21 and 25 and then even 27. And the thing is about this, it was a crippling thing. I mean... I, just to give you an example, uh, one time I, I lost 20 pounds in four days and, oh. um, my mom took me to the doctor. I think this was when I was about 21 and, um, the, the doctor could not find any vital signs whatsoever. They rushed me to the hospital, almost died. And, um, but it would always go away on its own. And my doctor, he wanted to, um, he thought it was maybe Crohn's disease, but he wasn't sure. And he didn't want to label me with Crohn's because of the insurance difficulties. So his philosophy was, you know, if we have to put an IV in you every three or four years and you get better, then let's just do it. And just watch this. Well, then I went to a seminary in Springfield, Missouri from Indiana. And um, when I, when I was there, I got sick again. So I was eight hours away from home and I had a, a friend of mine take me to the hospital. I knew the drill. <laughs> It happened all the time. So I, I knew what to do, but this time was different and I was getting, it, I w- it wasn't going away. And so they did exploratory surgery and they found it. And I've, I've been fine ever since. That was probably, um, Oh, well, many years ago, about 25 <laughs> years ago. So. That's all right. You don't have to share your age, <laughs> but I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord was with me. And I, I did have a sense of peace too. And I was, before I went under the knife, so to speak, um, I was, I just felt this peace 
because I knew that I'm, you know, there's a possibility I may not wake up, but I, I, I felt the peace of God and uh, I knew I was right with the Lord and he was going to be with me. So, but thank God I did wake up and um, I've been able to serve the Lord and um, have a family and uh, serve the church today. And not have to have an IV every three or four years. Yes, exactly. I've, I've had actually, I'm grateful I've had no complications whatsoever in that area. Well, let's talk about your calling into the ministry. Uh, okay. You were in your early, t- or I'm sorry, uh, early 20s, and you're leading a Bible study, mm-hmm. and you're growing in your discipleship, which yes. is, which is uh, well, the typical life of, of a Christian. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how, how did you move, and what was this calling into the ministry, and, and what did you think that, that looked like for you at that time? Um, well, once I surrendered to the Lord, um, I was, it's what I wanted to do. And uh, I felt, um, I felt at peace with it. Uh, My parents really weren't crazy about the idea. Um, (laughs) probably because, well, they just told me, I said, well, you know, they're like, you know, ministers don't make that much money. And, uh, I'm like, well, I don't care. This is what God wants me to do. So I'm going to do it. Um, and they supported me in that once they knew I wasn't going to change my mind, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I did have to make some changes because I was um, studying biology at mm-hmm. Indiana university. And so I talked to my pastor and uh, he told me, I'm like, well, you know, what do I need to do to become a, a minister? And I started the process there in the Methodist church, uh, which is very similar to the Presbyterian. And um, I um, trying to think here. He, he basically told me that, you know, just, Find, pick a de, pick a degree that interests you, something as a fallback, and then we'll send you to seminary after you're done. And so that's basically what I did. Um, I, st- I, st- I probably, uh, I started getting involved in youth ministry after that. Um, I started preaching a little bit. I became an outreach director in a church with evangelism in the local church. And so I did quite a few things uh, before I actually became a, a minister. And the... Um, I think you're the the Methodist church is a little bit different because uh, they have what's called uh, licensed local pastors. So you actually become a, a minister first. It, like we have a we have licentious. They have a license to preach, but they can't pastor yet. And um, they can't do the sacraments. Well, the Methodist church, you have to become a licensed local pastor before you're actually become an ordained elder. It's a requirement, okay. I think, for like five years or so. And so that's what I was. That's what I became actually during seminary. And so I, I was doing that for about, I did that for like five years. Um, and that's, and then that's when I left the Methodist church because I, I saw it was going a direction that I didn't want to go myself. We were uh, talking off mic about, um, how you got connected to the Cumberland Presbyterian church. So um, I think this is the point of your faith journey where, um, you get introduced to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in a unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, after I left the Methodist Church, I, I filled in different places, like as an interim, and I helped a friend of mine who was a pastor, and I was his associate for a while. And um, coming from the Methodist Church, I, I felt like starting a um, an independent Methodist Church. And so that's what we did. And we I tried to find a a venue, a place where we could gather. I had a small 
a group of friends who came and my family and um, we I called different churches in Springfield, Missouri, and um, the pastor of the uh, Springfield Church called me back up and uh, first Cumberland Presbyterian there. And he he talked with me a little bit. I met with him and the elders and they they allowed us to meet there. And we were meeting about we started out meeting in the afternoon and then we met in the morning. We changed the service time from one in the afternoon to eight in the morning. And when we did that, my family and I would stay afterwards and we go to the, the Sunday school class with Cumberland Church. And uh, we did that for quite a while. And just out of the blue one day, the uh, pastor of, of First Cumberland said, you know, you guys go to Sunday school with us and stuff. He said, why don't you uh, consider becoming, you know, a part of us and you can still have your your service and and um, you can be my associate. And um we, I prayed about that because I also had an offer from another denomination, the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. They wanting to do a church plant, and they had I'd already been in contact with them, mm-hmm. and so we were considering affiliating with them. But I, we felt the Lord directing us towards the Cumberland Church, so we became Cumberland Presbyterians. Going back to that time period, what what was it about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church that drew you to? to it okay um their doctrine uh, I, I had a, a copy of their confession of faith and um it just i d- it didn't have anything i disagreed with because i even when i was in the methodist church i'd actually become very reformed and um <laughs> i yeah it's kind of strange because i my, my doc you know my understanding of doctrine started changing because they they actually teach that you can lose your salvation well I'd already embraced eternal security, and I actually felt like the Presbyterian government was uh, the biblical form of government. So um, anyhow, uh, the thing about, like I mentioned how the Associate Reformed Presbyterians had contacted me. Well, that's the thing about them. They're very Calvinistic. And even though I and I would consider myself a moderate Calvinist like the the Cumberland Church, because I believe in free will, but also believe in the sovereignty of God. And that's one of the things that that the. Cumberland Presbyterian Church teaches, whereas the other Presbyterians, they totally deny free will. And so yeah. I really felt this is where I fit. This is where I belong. So at that point, have you finished your seminary degree and that that was complete? And, and... Yes. Yeah, I actually had finished that uh, before, uh, before I got ordained. Well, let's talk about the the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and I think the the Church Universal as well. Uh, I like asking the guest what what do you think that we are getting right in terms of ministry and mission and discipleship, and what do you think the church is missing here in twenty twenty two? Well, I I love the fact that for small denomination, I think we do a lot. Yeah, and you know we are a. Uh, we're not just an American church. We are a universal church ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're part of the universal church, but we we're everywhere. And um, there's something about that I really, really like. Um, and I also, you know, we're, we're international and we, we have our own seminary, our own college. We have a, a children's home. And I, I just think for a small group, we do quite a bit. Uh, as far as what we get right, um, I think... I don't think there's one, just one thing that we do, right? I, um, I think there's a lot of things we do, right? But I, I do think 
sometimes we're missing something and it's not just us. It's um, every, um, a lot of churches, a lot of denominations. Um, I think sometimes we try so hard to be open, to reach out to others that, that theologically we don't stand our ground. And that, that's caused a lot of tension in our own denomination because of that. Uh, some people lost their convictions about what the Bible teaches and what the confession has st- said for and stated for a long time. And so I hate seeing that. That bothered me. That's one of the reasons why I left the Methodist church to begin with. Yeah, we as Christians, you know, anytime you gather us together as a community of faith, you know, you're, you're gathering up differences. And mm-hmm. um, by doing this podcast, one of the things that has taught me, it's taught me many things, is our faith journeys are not always at the same speed and same no. pace. And we're not always walking in unison. And no. so that, that creates, uh, can, can create uh, tensions and conflicts, but tensions and conflicts aren't necessarily negative. It's just how we interact with one another that, True. Um, that is important. And I, I think that we have to be graceful and um, provide listening ears and, mm-hmm. and work through tensions and conflicts together. Um, I know that's very vague, but I think some of those things work in many settings, even beyond uh, a denomination or right. a local congregation. Uh, I think those principles do help uh, as we as we move forward. Right. Andy, we're coming on, I, I hope, uh, on the other side of a pandemic. And mm-hmm. the pandemic has taught, I think, us as Christians and just as humanity uh, a lot about ourselves. Um, and one of the things that I think for ministers is trying to care for ourselves uh, spiritually and, and, and physically. Um, what advice do you have for uh, listeners to, that uh, is working for you that helps keep you healthy? Physically? Physically and spiritually and okay. emotionally. Sure. Um, well, you know, we are... Some would say we're body and spirit, and others would say we're body, soul, and spirit. And uh, but you know there is there's the spiritual aspect of us, and there's the the physical aspect of us, and we need to take care of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to stay balanced uh, with my devotional life. I'm consistent, and you know my scripture reading um, daily, along with my prayer life, and I. I was taught a long time ago too that my my own study of the scriptures is not just studying for sermons, not just studying for Bible studies. I, I've got to do that too. But apart from doing that, I need time in the Word, just study, and uh, I make sure I get that. Um, as far as um, physically, I try to do things six days a week. Sunday's probably the only day I don't do anything. But um, the other six days a week, I, I do several different things, at least 30 minutes a day to try to keep myself physically fit. Well, depending on your style of preaching, mm-hmm. Sunday could also be physical uh, activity True. as well. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I teach a, I teach a Sunday school class before church service as well. And so we study the Bible. We're in Genesis right now. And then we had the preaching. But I, an older minister once told me that he felt like preaching a, a message is just about like putting a, a whole eight hour day in because physically. Yeah. And I would have to agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I'm usually pretty zapped. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's very draining, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you spend, uh, you know, a week or sometimes more in that sermon, just preparation and yeah. study. And then you have the culmination of the of the delivery and then the other workings of of the community of faith as well. The, yes. just the church life mm-hmm. as well. It really yes. can um, put a toll on on you in, in terms of your energy level. And, it can and I think it's always important for those who are uh, leaders in the church, whether you're ordained mm-hmm. or not, to to right. you know be careful and be conscious of 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 caring for your body so that you can care for others. Mm-hmm. Well, Andy, before yeah, I let I'm worried about that, yeah, uh, I really like what you said um, because there's that temptation uh, to approach the scriptures if you're a minister. Uh, only with sermon preparation in mind. And, um, yes. you know, there there needs to be that feeding of your own relationship and and um, and the sermon preparation as well. And uh, any, yeah. adv- any advice on that um, <clears throat> light switch, so to speak, of being able to open up the scriptures and going, okay, this is for my personal devotion and... I am not in search for a, a biblical text uh, right. for a Sunday school class or for a sermon or a Bible study. And by the way, that, that, um, that advice I actually got from a book that I read that really changed my life in ministry uh, called Preaching and Preachers by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who passed away in 1981. But that book was actually actually a series of lectures on preaching and preachers. And that that book is something that has shaped my life and my ministry. And that's just one of the things I remember him teaching in it. Um, I, I, I probably read that. I read the book originally in seminary. It was a requirement for a spiritual formation class. And I probably read it, read through it again probably every year. But anyway, um, when I when I open the scriptures, um, I try to. I try to read through both the Old and the New Testaments, and um, I just have a time frame that I spend every morning. It's the first thing I do is have some coffee, and I open up my Bible, and that's just my devotional reading for the day. And then when I get to church, uh, then that's that's time to, um, to you know start studying for my sermons and stuff like that. So I kind of keep it divided. Oh, that's but interesting. The thing is, though, about the minister, though, apart from that. Um, Sometimes people think that we're just, you know, we're just, our study is just from the sermons. And that's not always the case. We need to be feeding ourselves. And um, yes, we need to study for the sermons and prepare and prepare those. But apart from that, uh, the life of a minister is someone who, who um, is an avid, they need to be an avid reader. And uh, that's one of the other things I got from the book that we need to be always just consuming different things. And we've got to be balanced about it. You know, studying theology, studying church history, um, studying uh, just something that's of interest. And um, the thing is, apart from those hours of study, 
that's where the sermons are going to come from, too. Uh, I know that the uh, Charles Spurgeon, for example, Charles Spurgeon, and, and I don't model my ministry after him because I wouldn't do the what he does. But <laughs> what he did, he didn't start his sermon preparation until Saturday evenings. And uh, but all through the week, he just spent all of his time in his study, just just consuming the, the word and, and reading different things. And so his sermons would come out of that. But Saturday night, he'd write he'd write a little one page outline out. And then on Sunday morning, he'd preach from it. And, wow. uh, I'm not that comfortable doing that. I, there's a lot more to my to my uh, sermon outlines, outlines of just a little page. But <laughs> anyhow, and I don't wait on Saturday night either. But I do like his idea of, of just, you know, spending that time outside of your preparation time in mm. studying different subjects. I really like what you said um, about uh, the devotion time and the sermon preparation time actually having difficult uh, physical locations. So devotion, mm -hmm. you know, maybe is not at the desk if you have an office, but devotion is at the kitchen table at home. It's an entirely different location. That's that's a fantastic way to, I think, begin the practice and maintain the practice of not doing um, the devotion and sermon preparation in the same location. So it well, helps make it, it distinctive. It does, and it's probably the time frame too, because in the morning, because I probably, because realistically, most of my preparation is is done at home. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have office hours in Monday through Thursday, and I'm studying. I'm doing doing some book study here as far as like preparing for the sermon, mm -hmm. the actual writing uh, of my sermons and um, Bible studies are probably in the afternoon at my study at home. Okay. I so, still like that. I'm going to give you credit yeah. of, of having devotion. Uh, I'll add to this uh, from what you said. So having devotion at a, a specific time in a specific location in that sermon preparation at a different time and maybe even in a different location that mm -hmm. may help separate the two. So when you're sit down and approaching the scriptures, the, your, your body and your mind and the setting help convey yes, what, what, what you're doing. Yeah. Well, Andy, what are you reading now? Um, I'm reading a, um, Right now, I just picked up a book on evangelism, and uh, I can't remember the, the name of it because I just picked it up. <laughs> and um, anyway, right now, um, I am working on my doc doctor of ministry, and so I'm not able to do as much reading. Most, most of the reading I do is my classes. Yeah, required. <laughs> uh, yeah, required reading. But this summer, though, I'm not, I'm just reading uh, different things. I picked this book up, and I I also have um, Charles Spurgeon's um, Metropolitan Tabernacle. I've got all of his works. So I, I try to, to read his sermons at, for inspiration. Mm -hmm. So you look for his works for inspiration, but you don't follow his practices on sermon preparation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to wait till Saturday night. I yeah. usually, uh, um, I start as early as Monday, so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some people call that the uh, what is it, the Saturday night special. <laughs> oh yeah. No. I don't even like to be I mean, sometimes I'm still working on my sermon on Saturday, but I don't like that. I I like to have it done beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think mine is always in process. It it mm -hmm. always needs help. It always needs the tinkering with. Yeah, me too. I 
that's one of the things I do on Sunday morning. I mean, it's, I'd say it's done before that, but I always look it over and I'll make some finishing touches on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same with My- our Bible study. Yeah, mine are never polished, and and there are yeah. plenty who can testify. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, right, to, and they can confirm that. Uh, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for uh, being forthright and forthcoming, and and uh, working through the tech issues to to make this happen. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to share your faith journey. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate the honor to privilege to be here. Thank you for listening to the Cumberland Road. If you enjoy this podcast, consider subscribing on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting site. And now to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Friendship is one of the sweetest joys of life. Many might have failed beneath the bitterness of their trial had they not found a friend.